0: This is Leslie Kane, and you're listening to That UFO Podcast.
1: For a while now, you might have heard me tell you the podcast is sponsored by Zencaster, and it still is. I've been working with Zencaster as my audio host for quite some time now. The podcasting industry has also grown at an exponential rate over the past two years and it's expected to grow to more than a $150 billion industry by 2030. I've said before, I'm a huge fan of podcasting and if you're a fan of podcasting or investing, maybe both, Zencaster has now announced its round of crowdfunding. You can invest as little as $100 and join a community of other investors who seek to help Zencaster and independent podcasters succeed. If you're interested in investing in Zencaster, go to wefunder.com forward slash Zencaster or click the link in my episode description below to claim your slice of the future of podcasting. Hi everyone and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. My name is Andy and I am delighted to be joined as February rolls on with his second appearance on the podcast, a former F-16 pilot and the host and creator of his fantastic YouTube channel. You can find that link in the description to the podcast, Chris Leto. Chris, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Andy. It's great to be here. Well, do you know what? I thought you had been on the podcast a lot more recently than you had, and when I looked, it was September 2021, so we've skipped a whole a whole year, and my plan was always to have you back on, a lot more regular than that. It, it's been busy, though. Um, it seems like a lifetime ago. You've thrown yourself head first into the UFO topic. It's it's your life, it seems, at the moment, and you're a busy guy. You're a family man as well. Um, the Leto Files over on YouTube's got almost 80,000 subscribers. You've got a fantastic Patreon. I'm a member of that as well, so I'm fully paid up. You, um, what what's that last 15 months been like for you?
2: It, like you said, it's just been a whirlwind. So many things. Yeah, even right now, like today, uh, I have two more kind of videos to edit. On you know, one on Mount Wilson, another Mount Wilson episode, mm-hmm. and that's from last uh, November. And then an interview I did with the Sky 360 developer. Uh, another <laughs> video I I need to uh, to edit and, and get out there. So it just feels like. Like you said, just so much going on, so many uh, so many avenues to to to, lead, to go after, you know, so many leads, I guess. What kind of folks
1: do you get following you? So, like, I'm a nobody, so I started this podcast and I still do it in a shed, right? It's it's not changed very much, but you've got that pilot's background. So, do you find you get a lot of folks from that community looking at you because of your credentials, and you also get a lot of the UFO community? And what's that mix of people like that get in touch?
2: Yeah, it seems like there's kind of a mix around three people or three types of people. You know, you have the the UFO dedicated people. They're just excited to see action, I guess, just anything sort of different, which I think I kind of bring to the table. Um, so you do have that, just dedicated UAP enthusiasts, you know, such as yourself. And then you get, uh, I do get a little bit of the aviation enthusiasts. So there are mm-hmm. a lot of people that just love aviation. Yeah, uh, they love they love flying. Um, they love you know fighter jets, etc. That's less. You know, I don't tend to make too many videos uh, about that. When I did, when I do make videos about it, it, it seems like uh, my main audience doesn't really uh, listen. You know, they're not so interested. Sure. Um, so a little smaller swath of that. And then the third, I would say, is kind of uh, the other avenue I've been pursuing, which is this uh, nature of the universe. You know, kind of scalar theory of the universe i have my own theory of everything Mm -hmm. and so that uh that that avenue is kind of the third kind of the third avenue so i I kind of balance those three um so i try and put out a video on on the theory i really enjoy looking into the physics the science you know i think there's so much we we still don't know about the universe and i think we're going to find out just so much in the next like five years i'm just so, so excited and so so i do try and put out videos on that but it seems like about once Maybe twice a month, I get out a video on uh, on the physics stuff. So that's about it. Well, folks, that. folks want to hear
1: a bit of that. We touched on some of your theories in the last interview, the first one we've done. People can go back and check that one out. This is going to be more head into it. Your opinions, your thoughts on, on some of the goings on now. You mentioned that aviation community and more and more pilots, it seems, have begun to come out and report sightings. We see more recordings and FOIA requests being done by your John Greenwalds and such. And we're hearing these back and forwards with radar towers and you know, long communications. Did you expect this to happen as quickly as it had that more and more folks are comfortable talking about UFO sightings?
2: Um, yeah, I'm not sure. I guess, I guess I was expecting more data to come from the government. You know, I was expecting at least more than one crappy video uh, to be put out. You know, I thought they would give us a little bit more, and, and, and I guess that's naive, you know, obviously naive looking back. So uh, I would have hoped more pilots would have spoken out, to be honest, but I am very excited. Yeah, it, overall, I have to be very happy with it. You know, you have Ben Hansen at Hypocenter 101. He's investigating this. Um, so he's another pilot, and so he gets all the, the radio, um, basically the audio tapes. He's been working with that. Then you have Ryan Graves, so he just had another pilot, Mark Holsey. Yeah. On his uh, new podcast, so Ryan Graves has a new podcast. Everybody has a new podcast. Jeremy Corbell has a new podcast. Yeah. So they're coming after us, Andy. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, I was excited to see that definitely. Um, and and it's great because when another pilot talks to him, I, I feel like um, they they are asking the questions that I that I would want asked, you know, for the most part. And so when another pilot interviews like Mark Holsey, that's good enough for me. You know, I can just watch that interview. And now I can just analyze the things that he says from that, you know? So I really think this is where we're, we're, we're using decentralized investigation, you know, that, and that's why I put out a video. We talked a little bit beforehand about Mosul orb mm-hmm. and, and basically, you know, I, I basically can analyze it this week and put out a video immediately. So the same week I can get my analysis out there and, of, and there, of, of course, there's going to be mistakes, right? This isn't a scientifically peer reviewed paper. You know, yep. but those take months, you know, look at, at the information that came out of UAPX after the Tear in the Sky the movie. I thought the actual Tear in the Sky movie was excellent, you know, and, and unfortunately, I didn't watch it right when it came out. I don't know why I was turned off. I think a lot of people, maybe some for some reason turned off to the initial hype on it. Maybe there was so much hype on it and and it couldn't deliver or, or something happened. But I ended up watching it finally. And that was a great, great movie, you know, amazing. And so. I think it's great that we have so many decentralized avenues. You know, Ryan Graves interviews somebody. I don't talk really with Ryan Graves. You know, once in a while we commute. I'm trying to get him to come on my show. He said he was.
1: I've seen. I've seen. Yeah.
2: We'll see what happens. Uh, So hopefully he comes on. I I think it'd be great to talk with him. But even if he doesn't, you know, I'm fine with it as long as he is doing his his work. Right. As long as he's putting out those interviews, that really helps. It helps the cause. You know, so I I can't complain. So I'm, I'm very happy to see all these pilots pilots talking out and, and I talked to Eric Delgado, uh, my most popular recent video, he was basically flight 82, uh, captain, you know, he had 31, he has 31 years flying 10 years as as an air force tanker pilot, and then 21 years as a, as a FedEx pilot. And he has that great video of an orb. And when I, when I asked him, did it, did you have any negative effects? He said nothing, you know, no negative effects. In fact, it's been positive for him. You know, his family was able to watch him on, on TV. He said they, they had a great time watching, watching the show. Yeah. So I think it can be, that's great news that pilots are coming out, there's no negative effects and they're having a good time. So I, I hope we see more of that in the future.
1: Do you know? I've never had an issue, and it's funny. Some people get in touch and they'll say, "Oh, all these podcasts are too many." But the way I see it, it's like going to the supermarket and complaining. There's too many brands of pasta. You know, like you can you can mix and match. There's you don't have to listen to all of them. You can choose what you like, and there's room for everyone. And if if all of us interview different the same person, you can hear five different interviews with the same person, and that's that's what I enjoy with your channel. And that you listen to Ryan, you hear Jeremy and George and what they have done people get different things from different interviews. That's what I enjoy. And it's down to the kind of presentation and the way the shows are formatted. So for me it's the more the merrier. It doesn't it doesn't clog up. You can pick and choose what you want. So I've I've really enjoyed and especially hearing, like you say, it's it's not just another podcast for me. It's another avenue of information that comes out, especially when it comes to to Jeremy Corbell and George Knapp that we'll get to a little bit later on their muscle Orb stuff. But for me, these are people that they drop information and it can be hard to chase up And that's just even your average person on Twitter looking for more information on a video, data, sources. And unless you get a direct reply from Jeremy or George, there's nothing for months. Whereas now they've got a conduit where on a weekly basis, they can come back on statements, they can come back on criticisms, and they can give you extra information. And people like yourself, like you say, can get videos out, very high production value videos, very quickly, summarizing this kind of stuff as well. So I think it's a really rich database that's being created just for for your average person with an interest in UFOs.
2: Yeah, the way I think about it is as a neural network. You know, if you look Mm. now, how does a normal neural network work? Is basically you have a a neuron, like considering your brain, and it gets all these signals, right? It gets information in and then it processes it and then it sends on, you know, one, maybe one signal, right? To the right area. And that's how I kind of think of myself or or you or any of us is i'm receiving all the information you know i watched jeremy corbell's you know i watched his mosul Orb brief you know live as as close as i could be to live you know and then i i talk to you and i and i watch all these other things and i bring in like those three main kind of thoughts that i that i consider and then i create my own you know i'm processing it and then i send it out as a video right back into the network and so now Jeremy Corbell, like if he comes across my video, maybe he'll learn something from how I analyzed it. You know, yeah. um, And that allows the thousands of people, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people out there, smart people, to look at this stuff and say, "No, that's wrong." You know, like um, on the on the Eric Delgado orb capture. You know, basically, there's an autofocus issue. You can see it coming in as a sec. Every second, it seems to there's a just a an orb, essentially a light, and yeah. it expands and. And and then it uh, goes back to a point source, about every second. You know, it's probably the autofocus. But I, you know, I'm not a camera expert in that in that instance <laughs> by any means. So putting that video out there now, I get thousands and thousands of people to to review it. So I, I see it as a process. Yeah. And I think what I find is like newer YouTubers, um, they seem like we're in competition. I feel like we're more in direct competition. It, and so they they seem hesitant to like wanna come on my show or to wanna work with me um, and i that's that's fine but i think you you're just they're just hurting themselves because like you said i think collaboration is a better way to go right so people that are interested you know my followers those, those 80,000 people now um you know they're going to look at this hopefully some of them will look at watch this interview and so they'll see you you know and, the, and so you'll get some exposure to to my audience right and the same thing is your followers now if i can provide any value to them now i'm going to benefit as well and and so yeah i really think of it as a rising ship and and those of us in the trenches you know the uap like like you said living living uap basically um it it appears like it's still mainstream and you know everybody's talking about it but then just you know walk outside to someone you don't know and ask them about uaps yeah and chances are they're going to look at you with a straight blank face okay because they have no idea if you look at how many people are still spending hundreds of millions of dollars on just watching other people throw balls through you know nets um doing things that i think are are very i love sports and i love watching all this stuff but it's not going to move the needle for civilization you know it's not going to and that's what i want i want to move i want to move the needle uh, big time and so that's why we're i want to aim for the fences with uap society i don't want to do like little donations here, we're going to do this, you know, we're aiming for changing the system at a base level, you know, so anyway, I'm excited. I'm I'm looking for collaboration. I think the more people on the team, the better it helps and everybody's going to make mistakes. We just keep aiming for the final solution and we'll get there.
1: Well, you mentioned Ben Hansen before, and Ben was on the podcast with myself later last year talking about some of those videos he's been getting through from pilots. And we are getting reports of UFOs circling above pilots. One of the issues being they're filming them with their cell phones, which is great getting any film, but the quality can be really low and poor because we've all been there where you see something with the naked eye. And I was just talking with one of the MUFON directors from Southern California last night on the podcast. What you see with your naked eye and then what you film on your phone tend to be two very different things. So you go off of the testimony and any extra data we can get. The Ben Hansen videos, early skepticism put these down to misidentified Starlink satellites. And I wonder, have Starlink satellites become an issue for pilots because of the sheer volume of them in the sky when they are trying to identify what's out there?
2: Yeah, this is one of the big key points is, is there a safety incident? And for over four years, I was a a safety investigator. You know, basically I went to crash safety investigation school and I I loved it, you know, and that was really where I started, where I first was able to investigate something, you know, basically to go out, find data. um, And I think of it kind of in a scientific terms, find data about something, figure out what's wrong. And then implement the solution, right? And, and usually the best solution is not procedural, right? Best solution is you you engineer out the part. You know, that, that's a sense you engineer out the issue if, if that's the best way you can get, but that's very difficult to happen. So initially at the beginning, it's all just procedural, right? So if there's lights in the sky, you know, don't crash into the, you know, they'll just tell you something. As far as the Starlink, um, for safety reporting. I think the best thing is, like you kind of mentioned with Jeremy Corbell and getting information out, right? Is is really about speeding up the information flow between uh, the reporters and you know the pilots that are out there and uh, and all the ATC situations, everyone involved. The more the faster that information gets dispersed, then the safer it will be, right? In this case, I don't think you have any real safety issues because the Starlink satellites are, you know. Hundreds of miles above the Earth, and so there's no actual immediate threat. There's no deconfliction issue, right? That, that's your main problem in, in airlines: is running into something else or hitting the ground. That's that's your biggest issue. Like, you know, ninety-five percent of the time is just avoiding hitting anything. In this case, you're never going to hit the Starlink satellites, okay, with an aircraft. So there's no immediate safety threat. The only possible threat could be the pilot, essentially. <laughs> I don't know. Thinks he's gonna get hit by another plane or something, and, and then does some aggressive reactionary maneuver. I mean, in a commercial plane, you can't even do that initially, right? I mean, in a fighter, very quickly, yeah, you can run the plane in, into the ground or, or do something dangerous. Uh, but for for that reason, fighter pilots, like for me, I don't move. Like if some if, if I hear a loud noise, I freeze. You know, literally, I've I've just been trained not to not to do anything without thinking. You know, that, that's kind of the fighter pilot training. So in this case, I don't think there's any safety issue, right? So w- what I see is the pilots would actually be looking outside more, right? Because what are your normal commercial pilots doing is probably just reading a book or watching a movie or something up there. You know, I hate to, I hate to break everybody's bubble, burst everyone's bubble, but you know, the planes fly themselves. The pilots are there as, as safety observers essentially, and to do the taxing on the ground, right? The AI hasn't really solved it on the ground, um, taxing answering radio calls, etc. cetera. But as far as just the, the plane, making sure it doesn't hit anything, it's going to take care of itself as long as the pilots don't do something crazy. So the whole Starlink thing, in summary, I think it's good. <laughs> I really think okay. it's good that our pilots are interested in looking outside because that's what you want. Because all the time, like we made fun of the new uh, F-15 pilots when they came on board because they would just head down. They had this amazing radar, but they would just be looking down into the, into the cockpit, right? And you could see their plane with your eyes, and you would just go and shoot them. You know, so I think uh, it's it's good that they're looking outside. More reporting is better. So what will happen is and I've seen this multiple times. Right. Let's say you have a safety issue. OK, so I had to go. I had to investigate uh, bird strikes in and there was an airfield in southern Spain. Um, and so I went to the investigate. Right. They had um, c fives, So heavy aircraft would come through and they were getting bird strikes. But what was happening is it wasn't being reported. So they weren't being reported. The the issue was there, but it wasn't being reported, right? So on on paper, everything's fine, right? Everything's fine on paper. But once you start investigating it, what happens is the number of reports goes up, obviously, right, because now you're counting. so You're actually assessing, Okay, now the reports went up. So on paper, what happens? Oh, shit, man, look at this issue. (laughs) We're having a rapid increase in bird strikes. Um, No. You're just actually seeing what's out there. You're actually yep. taking account of what's actually out there. So, there could be the more pilots that know about these Starlink, the more pilots that are actually looking outside, then we should expect more accounts, right? We should expect more accounts of these lights in the sky, okay? So, we will have more people reporting Starlink satellites as unknowns. But this is a good thing. <laughs> so, that okay. is a good thing. That's how you raise your numbers. Raising your safety numbers is looked down upon by people that don't understand the system, right? But the first thing to, to solving a problem and to reducing the, the accident potential is, is getting data about it, right? Understanding the problem. And so I think you'll see our numbers go up, which people say, oh, you know, we're wasting pilots time. It's like, no, man, pilots have plenty of time up there. They have plenty of time. We need them looking outside, maybe taking photos. So you mentioned one camera, even a crappy camera, right? But if you get two cameras, so if there's another plane and they also film it, now even with two crappy cameras, we can get an angle. And yeah. now we can start actually figuring out. So any data is good. I'd say use cell phone cameras, that's great, amazing. If any you know actual photographers out there are pilots, then you know bring some better Zoom cameras and share the information.
1: Uh, what's it like being a pilot and seeing ordinary folks critiquing critiquing pilots' ability to observe what they're seeing? Because you see a lot of that online. Um, it, what, what is fair criticism? Because is it easy for a pilot to still misidentify so much in the sky? I think myself, I've always had the idea that, you know, watching Top Gun, Top Gun Maverick, great movie, by the way, um, people like yourself are the creme de la creme of, you know what you're looking at. And if a balloon flies past you, or it's, you know, a satellite in the sky, you're going to know. But is that always the case?
2: No, I, I guess kind of what I mentioned on um, on being a pilot is that you, I'm trained, as a, as a fighter pilot in particular, right, I was trained to not move. And it, it's funny because, you know, a, and I've kind of broken it after a couple of years. But a glass will fall off the counter, and my wife will just, boom, catch it immediately, like quick reaction. And I don't. I just watch it, tsh, you know. And so that went away, and now I can catch, you know, I've kind of broken yeah. that habit Um, but the point is, is that it's humans flying planes, right? So a, a good pilot, I think they're good because they understand and they've been trained over years and years, tons of training that they are human and that they have all of those limitations. Yep, That's the biggest thing. So on every flight, I misidentified something, every flight. Um, and the other thing is I never trust my eyes fully. And I also learned that and I never trust my flight lead fully. This is the other thing is, you know, everybody wanted to be like the best pilot. I want to be the guy that no one's afraid to lead, to follow, right? No one's afraid mm-hmm. to follow that guy into combat. And for my part, I'm like, no, 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 I don't want that. You know, I want you to be afraid, right? I want you to be slightly afraid. I don't want you to trust everything I do or say. Why would you possibly do that? <laughs> what if I run us into a wall? Um, and that happens. So the the, the point is, that. And that's what, and you will see that happen. You can look back at, at many plane crashes and because again, I was a safety officer and what'll happen is the crew, usually if it's a crew, they will just trust the, the lead pilot and not, uh, not question his actions,
0: mm-hmm. right?
2: And that lead pilot, if he believes everything he says, if he believes that everything his biological systems telling him that can lead to, you know, all these terrible crashes you see. So I would say, um, I think. Uh, their words are should be uh, listened to. It, you know people do misidentify things. pilots do misidentify things they, uh, We're all human at yeah. the end of the day. but you should take the aggregate of at some point it, 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 <laughs> there's so many pilots saying it, and all of these pilots have been trained in all those things. so we should take into account the the seasoned pilots, the experienced pilots know that they misidentify things just because they've done it so many times, you know, mm-hmm. is, is, is that plane turning towards me? No, it's turning away. Okay. Thank you. Is that plane, tu- that plane's turning away. Oh my God, it's turning towards me. I'm going to die. You know, that's literally uh, what it is. So after a few of those, enough of those incidents, you learn to not trust what you're seeing. And so I would say the good pilots are very hesitant to say, I know exactly what that was.
1: I'd like to thank Paperlike for sponsoring this episode. Something that's always held me back from making more use of my Apple Pencil for notes is the feeling across the screen. It still felt like I'm writing on glass, especially when scribbling notes for podcast episodes. Paperlike have very much changed how I use my existing iPad and it's giving it a new lease of life. Paperlike is perfect for anyone who draws and writes using an iPad and an Apple Pencil. The surface of the Paperlike is coated using nano dots tiny microbeads that are designed to add superior stroke precision when you drag the Apple Pencil across the screen. Every Paperlike comes in a set of two, so you'll always have a spare in case you need. I'm no artist either, but my kids certainly approve of using it to draw and doodle, and I can have peace of mind the screen underneath is completely protected. To pick up your Paperlike, head over to paperlike.com forward slash that UFO, click buy like and select your iPad size, plus shipping is completely free ready to do more with your ipad then head over to paperlike.com forward slash that ufo to get started
2: um
1: so yeah and what we need to be aware of as well is it's better to have pilots reporting more and more cases that we can solve and can put down to prosaic explanations to get to the ones that aren't as easily explained otherwise we get them going back into the shadows and people not wanting to report you know the the whole stigma being reduced seems to be really a real thing. We don't want that to go back, do we? Because like you say, then we don't get the volume of reports. So it's all very well that the UFO report came out and I know Julian Barnes in his New York Times article focused heavily on, well, 53% of those were actually solved, negating the fact 47% weren't. <laughs> yeah. And even, even that 47%, let's be fair, 40% of those, again, probably still can be solved down the line with something much more terrestrial we're still probably looking at a 5 or 7% of, wow, that really is unexplainable. And that's the interesting stuff, isn't it?
2: Exactly. Yeah, in order to actually find the cause of, of an accident is you need to start increasing your numbers. <laughs> you need to actually start gathering data. So so higher numbers is indicative of more investigation, right? The, the more people that know about Starlink... And the more people that can accurately identify it, you know, the more pilots that know, Hey, Oh wait, the, what are those crazy lights over there? Oh, that's Starlink. Cause I watched this video on it and that looks exactly like it. Well, why don't we just video it just to make sure, you know? So the more of those events, the better. And, and, and again, I, I think that's decentralized investigation That's decentralized science, you know, you know, I'm not talking to Ben at all. You know, once in a while we, we commute, but he's investigating Pilots, he's he's asking about these and he's putting it online, you know? So that's another data point, another data point. So yeah, th- I think it's great to get more data points, what we need. We need the pilots looking outside. They're, they're out there the most, right? You know, they're, you have thousands and thousands and thousands, you know, imagine if you look at flight radar, how many little planes are flying around at any one yeah. Any time it's, it's amazing. So if you think about those are trained observers up there and most of the time they're just watching TV. It would be awesome if they were looking outside. I, I think it'd be great if we could, you know, mobilize that. I hope no one's
1: listening to this right now on a flight and they're looking down down the aisle towards the cockpit, thinking, "Is my pilot watching a movie while we're up here?" And like you're saying, Chris, they probably are. So,
2: <laughs> same with me. I was looking outside more for you. Now I look outside on, on the yeah. last flights I was on. You know, I'm still reading, but then I look outside for a while. You know, and I'm trying to see. So, just think about. The more people that know about this stuff, now we have you know hundreds of thousands of people on commercial flights. Now we have tons of observers, I, you know. So once the data gets up high enough, and then if we're still like still not finding anything anomalous, then it'd be like okay, you know, we need to dial down. Maybe there is nothing. I, I you know, I'd be surprised, but.
1: Well, I'll tell you what, if any time in the future someone is listening to this and they're on a flight, send me a picture of you on the flight and I'll send you a T-shirt for the podcast, right? No matter how far in the future it is, if this podcast is even still going. um, A story that broke, now we're recording this, Chris, and it's not going to go out till closer to mid-February. It's the 3rd of February and just last night, overnight, a story broke that there was a at first a UFO sighting over Montana. I don't know if you've seen this. um basically there's a video of someone filming the moon and saying, now there's the moon. And they put the camera way over to the left and there's a very big bright light just sitting in the sky. It turns out, and the Pentagon has confirmed, it was a Chinese spy balloon. So this has basically came out in the last eight to 10 hours during the night here in the UK. You're based in Portugal, so we're on the same time zone. So it was like early, early morning. And I just wonder, we've now got some very close images of it. How common is it, do you think, that we have... Not just in the UK or Portugal, or particularly, I'm guessing the US, foreign technology in the skies that people just potentially misidentify. But how common is that that we've got these spy balloons and whatnot just there?
2: I mean, over the mainland of US, I haven't heard of anything, honestly, uh, because there's satellites, you know. So you can't stop a satellite from overflying the US. Yep, you know, and it's legal. So it seems much easier to do that rather than fly in a Chinese uh, balloon, space balloon that can be obviously picked up and identified. You know, so this I actually I do as we as I was walking in, I saw a headline for that. You know, a Chinese yeah. uh, uh, spy balloon, which makes sense, right? I, I'm sure we have systems. You know, nor, again, you have satellites, so. What would the spy balloon do that, you know, a satellite couldn't, it's going to give you continuous coverage in that area, you know, sustained coverage rather than just, just flying by. So i am actually curious now, look, as we launched, we launched a space balloon, you know, for the UAP society
0: mm-hmm.
2: and as a, it was a weather balloon. And basically from what I understand, every kind of medium sized weather facility in the world, I'm guessing releases weather balloons almost every day. So, so you're going to have a lot of these weather balloons out there flying around thousands of them, which is surprising I didn't see more as a pilot you know <laughs> i did yeah. I did see a couple but but that's it um so there are thousands of thousands of these flying around so it would make sense if you're you know a foreign adversary to make a, a weather balloon, but it has other sensors on it and and then just disguise it as a weather balloon you know I'm sure that's been done um so, yeah, I don't know. Off the borders, for sure. I think off the borders, you you know, there's always, but we always were told that there's, you know, Chinese fishing vessels, et cetera. Anything could be over the oceans. So in international waters. But that's the first time I've heard overland some sort of foreign system.
1: And it seems like a pretty old school technology as well, a balloon, but like you say, it does have its advantages um, over a, a satellite. But you'd think in 2023, we keep hearing what we're th- technology that we see is 30 years behind what they've actually got so to think the chinese are still putting balloons above the u.s but you say that doesn't surprise you that that technology is deployed because it's it's pretty useful
2: yeah that's what i found is it's quite cheap um, and you can put it up to a very high if you can get it to a high altitude it's very difficult to detect Mm -hmm. especially with radar because it's not moving and that's what we've seen a lot is off the east coast. Uh, you have the Range fouler reports, and basically they they have uh, these box orbs, and everyone you know they say oh it's a, it's obviously a balloon, et etc. Well, unless there's high winds, you know that, that is a huge negative of your balloons. Is you know um, at least I don't know how to keep a large balloon stable in high winds. Yeah. So that that's probably your biggest negative is how do you control these systems. But I have no doubt that the U S has some, you know, classified space balloon observation program. It just seems like, you know, we have low earth orbit and then we have aircraft, you know, with your, with your spy planes, et cetera, like your predators, your MC 12 that you saw at the Mosul orb. Those are low altitude though, you know, air breathers in between that low earth orbit and down at the ground is, you know, hundreds of miles. So that whole area you could put in vehicles, some sort of vehicles. In that case, I, I would see it as some sort of dirigible. So I don't know. It, it's definitely possible. But my big thing against that is if you have high winds, then your whole balloon idea, this whole idea that all these things are just balloons, you can make anything in the shape of, you can make a balloon into any shape, by the way. You know, balloon animals exist for a reason. Batman. Yeah, yeah, any, <laughs> you can make it again. There's balloon animals, okay? Yeah. If you're curious if you can make a balloon into anything, just YouTube, you know, interesting balloon animals. Um, So you can make a balloon into any shape, right? So they obviously, even a flying saucer, that's going to be a balloon, right? Everything can be a balloon unless it's in high winds. And then the question is, how do you maneuver a balloon, right, in Mm. in high winds? I, I don't know how. Remember,
1: George Knapp had released those pictures now the last couple of years have been a blur so last year or the year before um the three snaps from the the pilot and one of them did look well we had the famous batman balloon didn't we which was everyone said it was and you know that's still up in there for debate literally um but one of them did look like a big kind of blimp balloon and i wonder does this sort of discovery overnight of this chinese spy balloon above the us maybe help point to that previous one more than likely being some kind of foreign tech balloon that was placed there, or is that still unlikely? Do you think?
2: Yeah, it's definitely likely. I mean, they've been—that's been the main argument, right? Is that this is some sort of balloon? And if you look at that, that's the Acorn uh, Sphere Blimp uh, yes. video. That actually, my most popular short by far is is on that. Okay. If you look at it too, that blimp-looking thing at the end—it actually does look like a Tic Tac. Actually, mm. if you consider what a tic tac, uh, if you consider the shape, to me it all, it looks like a tic tac. So I would say that is the best mundane argument. That's literally the only mundane kind of argument I can consider is that it's some sort of advanced dirigible. the The biggest question is again in all those in a lot of those East Coast sightings, is they would say high winds, mm. but the problem is I've never been able to correlate. Okay, those pictures with them also saying high winds. They haven't said the date of the pictures. Uh, yeah. We don't know. Yeah. So I can't get any more data. All I have is those three kind of crappy pictures, four four kind of crappy pictures with no correlating data. But if we can correlate it to the same day, and that day has high winds, uh, and you have those pilots saying that, yeah, it was like 150 knot winds out there at 27,000 feet, then there's no way this like you know this chinese space blimp or, or whatever balloon they're talking about unless it has engines on it there's no way it's going to stay in the same position in 150 knot winds it's just it, that would be breakthrough technology and either way it's interesting
1: yeah and well one thing that we have got a little bit more data on and you've mentioned and i've mentioned is the muscle orb that came out from jeremy Corbell and george knapp's first episode of weaponized their new podcast um I should start a podcast about weaponized the podcast and just do like podcast inception. Um, the It caused a lot of debate, a lot of discussion. And I just wonder, what are your thoughts from seeing the initial still frame to the work you've done on it since? And as we record this, you've got a video coming out later today uh, on the orb itself. So not to spoil it, but it'll have been yeah. out a week and a half since when this gets released.
2: I think it's really exciting. Yeah, I'm really I'm really happy with it. You know, because I was on Tonanza, that was Theories of Everything, his eight hour long live cast. And I, saw, I was on that as well. Yep. yep yeah. Yep. I saw Jeremy Corbell and, and George Knapp. They teased in January they'd have some big release coming. And they delivered. You know, so he lives in Vegas. Vegas is a, you know, the the center of the US Air Force tactical aviation. That's where our weapons school is. You know, that's where our the Air Force top gun. Is in Las Vegas, so I think he just has good connections there. Yeah, in Vegas, he's able to to bring out these uh, these amazing uh, releases. So the the Mosul orb, I think, it, it first off, it's a clear picture. You know, everybody's like, what about those clear pictures? You know, it, I mean, it's sort of fuzzy around the outer edges, but I think that could be just from motion blur. Mm-hmm. And then you look at uh, based on the focus, I don't think it can be a water droplet. Because it's so zoomed in, it's zoomed in almost to one degree. Okay. And so it's it's it, it's like a telezoom, if you think about it. so four and a half miles away is, is basically what I analyzed. I was able to you can watch my video later on, but I the slant range is about four and a half nautical miles. And we don't know the size of this thing, obviously, right? If it's an unidentified object, but if it's a meter, if it's a meter across, uh, then it would be about Halfway between the jet and the ground in that picture, so that's that's what I was able to find. So we'll learn more. They said there's a four second video. Yep. So it really depends on how long is that thing in the video for. You know, does it does it just like fly by the video? Because that'll tell me it's it's close to the plane, right? It's close to the camera if it goes by quickly. But what I've seen, like um, watching a target with a pod. Like if a helicopter comes in, right, the helicopter is close to the building. So you'll see the helicopter for a while, which makes sense. You know, if you think about it, you're far away, really zoomed in to a point. The longer that object is in the frame, that means the closer it is to to the buildings. And so in that case, that that would make it larger. Um, One of the other
1: arguments, you've mentioned the water droplet, but the other argument was that it was potentially a large puddle someone had looked at Google Maps and in that exact spot, which it may just be coincidence and isn't this just typical of the UFO subject, the object appears to be over what is like a big indentation in the ground. So if there had been rain, that's where it would have been. But again, from your calculations and the work you have done, is it unlikely to be a large body of water on the ground?
2: Yeah, I'm not uh, you know, an optics expert. I'm told a lot. Uh, but, uh, you know, I went to, uh, Metabunk and according to Mick West, it can't be towards the ground. You know, he says basically it's 1500 millimeter zoomed in. Um, and so the focus is different. If you look at the focus around the objects uh, on the ground, right, they're, they're in kind of a more accurate focus, if you will, mm-hmm. the, the line is less fuzzy on the outside. And if you look at the object, it's more fuzzy.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So meaning that... <laughs> It's it's closer to the camera. It's not in the same focus plane of view. Right. It's not the same distance from the lens from the sensor as uh, the objects on the ground. Yeah. Right. So if it, if it was on the ground and it was a puddle, then you should see the puddle clearly outlined. Right. So mm-hmm. I guess their their only argument would be is that that fuzziness is somehow optically an illusion from this puddle on the ground. Um, I looked at Google Earth as well. I looked at Google Maps, and there's it's just a regular street. There's, you know, there's nothing there. Um, so I, I don't know. According to Mick West, it's not a puddle on the ground, and I believe also it can't be a water droplet just because of so far how far zoomed in the camera is. So I think this one is is truly anomalous, unless you know the best I can think of is a like silver balloon. You know they're going to come up with a balloon. It, it's going to yeah. be a balloon. If it's flying in the air and they can't identify it, then the best argument is balloon
1: do we need the video though to really make uh, a concrete decision on what this object is and where it is and I- i've not actually heard jeremy or george say directly and i did watch weaponized have they seen the four second video or have they just said there is a four second video
2: i, I don't know um i didn't hear exactly what he said all I know is that from what I understand is the four second video is classified. Right. So if it's classified, as far as I know, they don't have security clearances. They shouldn't, they shouldn't be seeing it. They
0: mm-hmm. shouldn't
2: have seen it. So that that was my impression is that the video is okay. classified. So they obviously they couldn't have seen it now. The picture that was released was just unclassified because there's nothing actually classified on it that they can say hundred percent. I think they'll still get in trouble. It'll still be the same thing because you can, You know, I was able to find out the plane is four and a half miles away. We know exactly where the target is. So you can tell the the sensor, you get data on the systems they're using. Right. And you can determine operations, you know, okay. You know, if they're looking at target, maybe they will be this far away. So you can find those sort of things that obviously our government, the military doesn't, doesn't want to give out. This was also from seven years ago. Right. And we're not fighting there anymore. (laughs) So how long do we need to keep this stuff? keep this stuff secret but from my point of view i need the video you know i'm limited now to i, I analyze as far as i think i could do it and that basically what i said is if it's a meter long it would be in this location well if we get more data points if we get the video now we can determine okay it is <laughs> within this range you know then i then i could say okay it is within you know, a half meter to 10 meters or something, you know, I I could actually give a range there, but whereas of now is, you know, we don't really know. So I'm very excited to get more data, more images and the full video.
1: And again, like we've said, the beauty of weaponized now being a thing is George and Jeremy are there for that kind of regular contact and you would expect and hope. And I I speak to, this isn't me God dropping names, right? I'm never the type, but I speak to Jeremy pretty regular via text And he always seems the type that's really up for being held accountable. And I think this, I would be disappointed if they didn't address it regularly on the podcast and come back to Drops to say, this is what we said last week. And whether it was debunked or actually here's something that's been brought up, let's answer these things first and then move on, because this is the opportunity they've got with the platform that they have, which is already a massive success. But I think that for me is the, the key to it being a continued success.
2: Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, whatever you think about Jeremy Corbell, his releases have been, you know, uh, approved by the government. Meaning, whatever he releases, <laughs> the US government has come around and said, yes, that is legitimate. You know, those are real. They've been, they haven't come out yet and been like, no, that's not true. You know, or that video wasn't, uh, wasn't realistic. So I would take it as, yeah, it looks like it's a realistic capture. And also interesting that it's this it's this round orb thing that keeps, seems like it keeps coming up, you know, Ross mm-hmm. Coulter, he initially had the, like the bet sphere kind of yep. idea, but I've also had many videos. One one's from Nigel Benton. He's in the UK actually in England. And he was, he had separated by fifth, I think 15 years. He videoed just a white orb. It looks like, I don't know, a planet that's maybe too bright during the day. Mm-hmm. and it actually passes, <laughs> a plane passes behind it. So you can actually see it's nearer to the, um, and no one's really talked about those. You know, I, I bring it up, I've, brought, I've made a, a couple of videos on it, but, you know, those, those sort of captures just kind of go by the wayside.
1: What was his name? Just I'll put the link for your video in the description, but for people who may have heard that, I'm like, oh, what did he say?
2: Nigel Benton. I'll, I'll stick that link again in the description, folks. Excellent. I'll, yeah, I'll he has two videos. Well. He went out, um, I think, in 2008. He captured the first one just by accident. He was sitting back in his in his on his guard in his garden, looking up, and he saw like a star during the day. He's like, "That's weird," and so he ended up videoing it. I ended up seeing the video. He t- he asked me what I should do with it, and I said, "Hey, put it on YouTube." You know, so he throws it on YouTube. This was in uh, 2020, I believe, and then it, that same year he sees it again. And so he recorded it again, uh, the same location, and he posted it, posted another video. So yeah, I think something on with these, there's something going on with these orbs, you know, is this like some AI super drone, you know, that that's basically here monitoring, or is this a metallic balloon that we don't know about flying around, or is it some sort of drone it just seems weird you'd have well, in afghanistan you think, you'd have this no, silver drone
1: what do you think's more likely because it seems the type of shape that as technology improves that maybe it would be I mean, it's not particularly aerodynamic is it that's that's one yeah. of the issues and we see a lot of the drones or, or craft being used at all different kinds of altitudes a big ball no matter what size doesn't seem to be the best one to be throwing up in the air regardless of the technology you're deploying to move it so is it more likely, and I've said before, just because they're drones doesn't mean they're human drones. Right. We put big cubes up on Mars to ro- rove about the planet with big tracks underneath them and they move a couple of feet in a day. And I've always said, you know, if, if anyone thinks, why would, and I, I use this argument with people I work with who have no interest in the UFO topic, who, who find out I've got a podcast on it, and they'll say, why would a civilization come millions of miles and fly their spaceships about here? And I'm like, well, we have just put a big robot on Mars, and it, it roves about. It collects samples, and then every so often, it's got a little helicopter which flies up off of the robot, goes a couple of feet away from it, and comes back. Is that not really strange? And th- there's no real argument there, sir, there? because we do the same.
2: Yeah, it's it's just funny that um, we just uh, we think we know everything. <laughs> I find it it just. Uh, it's the human nature right you have to be confident to take a step you know you have to be confident to eat that you know food or you're never going to eat you're never going to walk anywhere you wouldn't exist yeah. so there's a confidence that we have to have as humans that i think <laughs> they hide the true nature of reality which is we don't know the true nature of reality we don't know really much past our own planetary borders right we th- we think we can see so far um, but you know, look, just last month it was a what was it? A comet the size of a large eighteen uh, wheeler, you know, came underneath our low Earth satellites, and we didn't see that comet. I mean, we didn't see that that meteor, right? So that we could easily be impacted by a meteor at any minute. I mean, we really aren't looking. Uh, you know, this this idea that we have. There's a few programs, right? But but just as an example, that one that one meteor. So I think there's so much we don't know. W- what I think about with the the spheres is you mentioned something you said that the the shape doesn't seem realistic, given how it would maneuver uh, or some, something to that end. yeah, yeah, but I think the shape of it would would give us clues to exactly how it would maneuver, right? So if I think of if this is possible what, what are some possible technologies for this, right? What could possibly happen? I think in terms of gravitics magnetics, right? There's still so much we don't know about the Earth's magnetic field. Mm -hmm. Um, We still don't know how gravity actually works. We don't really understand gravity, we don't really understand electricity, and we don't really understand magnetism. And I think those three things are are really (laughs) interrelated. They could be the same thing, actually the same thing. We just see it, it comes out in different uh, perspectives. So, what if, like this metal ball, right? What if it's shaped like that for a particular reason, involving some sort of magnetics, right? if you're trying to maneuver if inside you have some sort of uh, some sort of electromagnetic system that can just hold itself in a uh, in a geodesic a magnetic line with the earth, right? because the earth is a giant magnet, if you think about it, giant yeah. magnet interacting with the solar wind, right? so you have And actually millions of tons of electrons, solar wind, are hitting the earth from the sun, I believe every day. So, I mean, you just have tons of actual motion going on. There's tons of energy hitting the earth. There are tons of magnetic fields that we don't understand. Could a ball, you know, could it just move? And that's where I think about these Tic Tacs. When you think of the Tic Tacs on the West Coast, you know, when they came in at 80,000 feet, then they went right down to 28,000 feet and then they just held and actually they they tracked on, uh, I think, um, Kevin Dave, and said, like east-west. They were tracking on like longitude lines. And then it goes down to the surface, immediate. You know, the only thing I, I think of that is like discrete jumps. If you're thinking of solid state elect- electronics, how does solid state electronics work is it actually goes through these discrete jumps. Um, so I, I don't know. I think my own belief, and it, again, it's, it's like a guesstimate, is that it, That's where it kind of lies where the answer kind of lies is our understanding of the actual earth, the environment that the earth is actually in the magnetic environment, how does magnetic, how does magnetism and, and electrical, how does the electromagnetic spectrum actually work? and how will that interact with gravity and i and i think it it leans towards that direction
1: hi everyone if you listen to the podcast on an apple device you can support directly by going on to apple podcasts and clicking the subscribe button and for less than the price of a coffee per month you can get early access to episodes, episodes in full and no adverts or sponsorships like this one you're hearing now. It also supports directly to me at the podcast so thank you very much. Also don't forget to go and leave the podcast on Apple a five-star review and make sure you click the follow button too. Thanks. That's really interesting, nice way to think about it and give me people like me something to think about as well in terms of how these things maybe move and operate and I think it also gives you the idea that, say, these things do come from from space and then into our atmosphere, and then they can operate underwater as well. Maybe they're using different systems to operate in those different places, and again, that could also make them a little bit fallible. We hear these objects can sometimes crash, and people say, well, how can this great technology crash? Yeah, but maybe when it's moving from one thing to another thing to another thing, there's maybe moments where there, there's a weakness and that's why what happens to them happens. But then maybe not. Maybe that's not how it works. But I like, I like your idea.
2: Well, it depends how many there are. You know, imagine you have, um, you have these, these devices and they're invisible, you know, for whatever reason. I mean, th- there could be like literally millions of these things on the earth. You know, if you look at how many objects are in orbit right now, if you look at how much junk and trash do we have in orbit, there's like hundreds of thousands of of objects up there, yeah you know the earth is is a big place you know we we like to think that <laughs> that it's not right, but you could have you could literally have millions of these objects and you just have a very small percentage of them that fails or crashes or or doesn't work or or we're able to detect just such a small percentage yeah um, that it that it comes out that way you know
1: no pretty cool I like that. Uh, I want to know, Chris, moving on very slightly, what's been some of the most compelling evidence you've looked at over the last year? Now, you've put out a lot of videos, and I would encourage folks to go and look at those. Is there anything, though, that you've worked on that you've thought that that to you is something really worth going after?
2: oh man like a case or
0: (laughs) yeah i I mean it might be like
1: the Mosul orb for example where you think i would love more on that that's the one or has it been one of the pilot sightings or
2: i've been most surprised i guess by the the amount of data i guess proving or (laughs) proclaiming to prove that there is um telepathic communication okay that's probably then the biggest, I guess, surprise for me. Um, as far as the, the smoking gun, you know, for me, I try and put out everything immediately. You know, I don't like holding information at all. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. If it's like an excitement to try and publish it or not. Um, so I don't have anything really that I'm not. <laughs> you could watch my channel, and basically, you would have kind of a understanding of of all the things I'm I'm looking at. The thing that's probably surprised me the most, though, is this from Dean Radin. Mm-hmm. He has done all these apparent scientific experiments, right? Everybody's asking, where's the data? Where's the data? Well, he's this guy's done all these scientific experiments. Dean Radin has done them, uh, according to him, proving this non-locality. So basically, telepathic uh, effects, specifically on the double-set experiment. And for me, if if that's true, I mean, I think that would just blow, blow our current understanding of physics out of the water. Right? Can you if, explain if that double? Physics.
1: You mentioned double slit experiment. Is that the one that I've seen the picture or the graphic where you're looking at the two lines? Yeah. And I, yeah. I see, I, but yeah, can you explain that? Because an idiot like me sees it and goes, "I think I've got a rough idea what's going on," but dumb it down for me.
2: I I don't know if anyone can explain it, you know. But I, I will say. It comes from the double-slit experiment that was Thomas Young in in 1809. So I guess the biggest (laughs) evidence I can point to is that it's been over 200 years since this experiment. And the scientists are still talking about it on different, on opposing sides, right? You can go, you can, you can look uh, on YouTube um, and you'll find YouTubers saying that the double-slit experiment is, (laughs) is, is not there's there's no there there, right? It, it's explained. It's obviously explained. And then you can find on the same in the same area the opposite explanation that the double slit is mind bending and it proves non locality, right? So the biggest thing I would suggest is over two hundred years they're still talking about it, okay? And so that should give some sort of idea that that there is something there. So as, as far as the actual experiment that Dean Radin did is the double slit experiment uh, is, is basically when you shine a, a light through a hole, okay. When you shine a light through a hole, what we found is it acts like water. So the same thing as if, you, you know, in a pool waves around a pool, if, if you have a little hole in a pool and you, and you put it, you splash on one side, right. You will you'll have a, a pattern go out, you know, in and mm-hmm. waves proving that shows that water, at least when you impact it acts like a wave, like a compression wave. And so the same thing happens with light and they were very very surprised right to find that light actually works as a wave because if if it's acting as a wave then you have to ask well what is it what is waving right what is waving because in water i hit the water right the water is itself waving right yep. so that makes simple sense to me okay when they did the same thing with light they shine light through what they notice is the light itself is waving in in the question, and I think it still is not answered, is what is it waving through? Like, what is physically moving up and down, right? If if it's uh, the light, so...
1: Is that as in, why is it not just going in a straight line? Yes. Yeah, okay.
2: Exactly. And so that's the two. So if it goes in a straight line and they're able to measure this, it behaves like a particle, like a bullet, you know? Mm -hmm. So they shoot the light and the light goes through the hole. Imagine a little hole here. If it behaves like a particle, it'll go straight and hit right in the front, you know, right where you aim, you know? The problem is, and that's when you when you look, okay? But when you don't look, when you're not looking and you shine the light, it just acts like a normal wave. And so what you'll get on the wall is a wave pattern. It'll look like water hitting a wave rather than a little bullet hitting the wall. And that's it. So the, what's freaking out everybody, and it, again, they haven't answered it, and they keep saying they answered it, but they haven't for 200 years, is that when you watch it, <laughs> when you watch it, that bullet hits the wall, and when you're not watching it, it doesn't. It acts like a way. It's like it's saving energy. Like the system, it's like in a video game. You know, uh, if you're in a mass video game, uh, and you look, say, you turn and you're looking in the distance, it takes a while for that to render, right? You'll yep. see it's kind of blurry at the beginning, but then it goes high def, yeah, right? Because your computer's only rendering what you're looking at, because it has to use all that processing. So when it looks over here, it's like, okay, it hasn't rendered yet. And then it fills in. And that's kind of what we're seeing with the double slit experiment is that if we don't look over there, it's a wave. But when we, okay. now, when we look, it renders in, it fills in and, and goes to a specific point and behaves like a particle. And, and what's even one step ahead of that is Dean Radin. What he found is you don't even have to look with your eyes. If he, he got meditators, these guys who were just good at meditating. And if they just think about it, right? He was, he, he says, proven, if you just think about it, it will render. It's like you're looking at it. And it doesn't matter how far away it is. It doesn't matter when it happened. So it's, that's the biggest surprise to me is that we have evidence that space and time can be bypassed simply by mental uh, processes. And if that's true, then it means it opens up the venue on what this UAP phenomena could be, right? Because if I can think about something anywhere in the universe and affect it, then theoretically you could have anyone in the universe or anything thinking about us, right?
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Somehow affecting us. So it it means there could be a reverse. Um, And so that would be like the woo, you know, because I I keep hitting against, I'm nuts and bolts. I came from nuts and bolts world. Um, but it's just the woo is there, you know, it's like this big gorilla, yeah. <laughs> like this weird looking, you know, <laughs> Bigfoot gorilla. That well, that's a nice little segue because um, I,
1: I was going to say, Chris, I, we've, we've started Very Nuts and Bolts and it's kind of gone up and up and up and gone into spheres and orbs and non-localities. And I was going to ask you before we come back down to UFO reports and whistleblowers, <laughs> while we're at the peak of the mountain, you've done some work uh, on your YouTube channel on the Mount Wilson Ranch, and I noticed that in one of the videos you, you actually called out very fairly that you, you lost some viewers, some subscribers, not a whole lot, but, you know, there were some people who didn't like that you were going in that direction with that particular chat uh, because it was too woo. So maybe yeah. that's your more nuts and bolts aviation enthusiasts who are dipping their toe in the UFO water and they see, well, this is just a step too far, but... Can you tell us a little bit about the Mount Wilson Ranch and the work you've done there and what's ongoing with it?
2: Yeah, definitely. Thanks for asking. Um, So Carl Vibe, I met him at uh, Blind Frog Ranch when I went there for UFO disclosure. So we went um, and they let Carl Vibe all over that Blind Frog Ranch. um, And he wasn't really impressed. He didn't think there was anything there to to really investigate. Um, But he did think there was something at Mount Wilson Ranch. And so this is Mount Wilson Ranch. It was bought by... Bigelow, so Bob Bigelow purchased it around the same time he purchased Skimwalker Ranch, and so Skinwalker Ranch is well known. That's where they had all the uh, the ASAP programs going, but they also had Mount Wilson Ranch, and they invited the same team. So we have pictures. Carl has pictures. There's also pictures in um, Jacques Vallee's book on them in Mount Wilson Ranch. So Eric Davis, you know Hal Putoff, Bob Bigelow, that whole team, the NIDs team. Did for some reason thought it was interesting. You know, so that alone makes it made it interesting um, for me. Second thing is there's a lot of shaman crazy stories. You know, your your woo stories just pervade that whole area, you know, so which which is also interesting. And then finally, is we we partnered with Sky 360. And so their camera systems are almost ready. I, I just saw I'm I'm editing a video now with one of the developers. But the tracking system works. So they use ChatGPT and it just accelerated our coding, right? Because he, he can just tell ChatPT or ask it to um, code these things, the, these uh, tools that they need. And so it works now. So the object tracking software is working. Uh, the hardware has been finalized. So I think we'll be ready to go back this spring. And I want to put three systems in, in a triangle of these Sky360 uh, sky searching systems. And get them up and running and i, I hope to just have them streaming uh, as best we can so that's the whole idea of mount wilson ranch it, it's exciting there it's definitely a, an exciting place there's i think you'll hear about it in the future
1: what are you hoping to see though are you hoping to find some to skinwalker ranch we hear there's the activity in the sky we hear about the activity on the ranch portals opening up dire wolves cattle being moved from one location to like inside small cabins and then bursting out in catatonic states. Is that all the same type of activity that you're hoping and expecting to find at Mount
2: Wilson? Yeah, I hope to find anything anomalous. I mean, for me personally, is it's at 8,000 feet. So Mount Wilson, there's an observatory right, right nearby because it has clear skies, you know, it's in Nevada has super clear skies it up at, it's up at eight thousand feet and then it's I think 60 miles from area 51. so for me is it's a interesting location where other investigators are going you know so UAP Society the idea was to make a formal integration so use web 3 technology but get these people like Carl Carl's perfect man he's a UAP Society basically founding member um, and so what he did is he found Mount Wilson uh, He convinced me at least that it's that it's an interesting place. And then he worked with the owner, Jeff McBurney. And so now we can make a headquarters there. So for me is setting up a permanent research station. So my own interest is in the sky. So looking to these sky 360 systems, but I I also am very interested in these other kind of aspects you talked about, you know, the, the weird, um, mental aspects. Could there be some sort of telepathic communication, you know, through time, through space, I, it sounds ridiculous, you know, a year ago, I would have said that's ridiculous to myself. Right. And, but you said, you asked kind him, of, what's the biggest thing that changed and surprising is that I, I would consider that possible, right? Mm-hmm. We have scientists saying, here's the evidence it's possible. He has more science. He has a, uh, it's like a mass double set experiment coming out this year. He's building his own little technical devices. That's Dean Radin. So we should see more evidence of this space and time, not being local mental effects at the same time at Mount Wilson ranch, you have Carl vibe who's gone through the gateway program. So he's basically studied the CIA's, uh, mental gateway program. I think from, uh, the (laughs) seventies, it's actually been changed now. Um, so he's been doing all the hardcore meditation going to the end, you know, Solving it to the end. I think that's what I don't want to do. I don't want to spread myself too thin. And maybe that's what the audience is thinking, and for good reason, is I want to investigate these these threads, if you will, these interesting threads, but I want to investigate them all the way to the end. Right? I want to get to an end where there's an end and we can be like, nope. You know, like that's off the list. Because I think up until now we don't. You know, I think a lot of people just dabble you know i don't want to dabble in the woo you know i want to get into the woo i want to f- f- gather the mud of the woo dig through it and find something real and chop its head off you know that's what i want to do um and so i, I don't think you do that by doing these half-assed measures um, i think you need to get in there and and, and do it long term serious and so that's that's what i'm aiming to to aim for the woo and that's what i'm aiming for mount wilson is to set up set up a nuts and bolts operation but it's at the place where all this supposed woo happens as well. So we'll be there with the cameras. If anything, we'll, we'll video it. And so that, that's the main goal.
1: I get that, though, with people who have a, a strong disdain or dislike for one side of the UFO topic or the other, where they're very nuts and bolts and they hate the woo, or... They're very much more woo spiritual, whatever you want to call it, not in a bad way, but that's you know that that sort of area, and they're much less nuts and bolts because I've I've got the same thing. Sometimes I'll mention oh like guilty pleasures. I remember I used to watch YouTube videos about Andrew Bassiaggio and he would talk about being part of the Mars Jump program apparently with President Obama. And as kids, they would go, and it was crazy. But, you know, just to let your imagination go, I wonder. Same talking about, you know, other alien bases out in Antarctica. And there's some folks who just have no interest or time for that. Maybe some of the Linda Moulton House stuff that she goes into where, you know, I've got this anonymous source. And here's a 50-page a monologue from them about where they, they fought aliens under the ice in Antarctica. <laughs> and there's people who love that. But then there's people who are like, no, what's going on with U.S. Congress? You know, what politicians right now are talking about the UFO subject? What's happening with the Navy right now? What are they seeing? And that's their stuff. And it's like you say, there's people like yourself who you're finding more of an interest in the kind of wider aspects of it. And there's something for everyone in the subject. And I think you're playing it off really well. And whatever I've watched of yours, Chris you're not getting ridiculous with it and you're not completely throwing your guns down and saying actually do you know what what the navy tic tacks blah blah blah. could be anything i'm really interested in this stuff out here that i can't do anything about can't see can't prove you want to go and do the science because as a science there to be done do the experiments do the work boots on the ground research and i think there's there's a big audience for that still but i get where the odd person goes nah not for me
2: yeah, the same. And there's different content, and you know that's longer form. It's like vlog content, so I'm putting yeah. it on uh, the second channel, UAP Society, which is where it 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 deserves to be anyway. It's a, it's a UAP Society project, you know. And the other thing I hope is that it motivates people to take part. I I just I don't like sitting there and waiting for handouts from the government when it hasn't come for 80 years, <laughs> you know, like. Well, it's hard to not get our hopes up, but look at the past experience. Like there's no way we're going to get the information that we want. Uh, uh, you know, apart from aliens appearing over every major city and saying, "Yes, we are here." And obviously they haven't done it up until now. So if they exist, there doesn't appear to be any major benefit to them doing that. So I don't think that's going to happen. So it'll be the government on it out of its own good gracious you know, handing us the information. I'd rather, I want to pressure the government to release the information, but you pressure it by evidence, right? So if we find, you know, uh, if we have dedicated videos from Mount Wilson Ranch, you know, of a tri system, three cameras, picking up some orb, that puts a lot of pressure on the government just by the quality of our evidence, right? So now we can say, look, this is what's flying over our skies. This is what's flying over America. It's not a Chinese, it's not a Chinese space balloon right? It, you can't identify this. That puts a lot of pressure on the government. And so that's my aim is not to go and bang on the government's door. My aim is to go motivate the people, right? Mass interest, use Web3 technology to to swing for the fences, right? I don't want some half-assed program. I want it to be global worldwide. I'm not just aiming at the US. This, we went Web3. We went with Ethereum because it's a global network. It takes, you know, no government can needs to approve your Ethereum transaction. So that that's why we went, we went global, you know, and, yeah. and I haven't mentioned the Web3 stuff. I, I put it on the back burner for now because people are obviously not ready for it, but they're going to be ready for it, right? This is like, like five years ago, everybody's electric vehicles, not the way to go. You look at it now, ICE cars are dead. They're dead. As of this year, it, everything's going to be electric and you're going to see because it's a better technology. It's a digitized technology. It, it has one tenth of the parts. It's the same thing. This Web3 technology, the stuff I'm not even going to mention the N-word, uh, the Web3 technology digital collectibles, they're better. You know, they're faster. It's cheaper. It's going to cut out a lot of these middlemen that are just taking your money for no and not providing any actual value. So for us, UAP Society, we're doing the background work on the tech now, right? I, I'm not advertising it because people freak out when I advertise it, but we're building it. And so yeah. I'm working on weekends, everything, building that stuff in the background. For when people come around, okay? They will come around. It, it will be the future, without a doubt. It's going to be the future because it's better, it's cheaper, it's faster. I mean, it's so it's new innovation. So we'll be there. We're ready. We'll be, we'll be the experts when people show up and they are like, have you heard about this uh, NFT stuff? And they be like, no, we call it digital collectibles. Uh, yeah. But we do. We, we will know it. So that, that's the idea. And then to use that, aim it at the problem.
1: Well, we're coming back down from the woo, so let's get back into the kind of last part of the the podcast. The delayed UAP report was due out on the 31st of October, 2023. Uh, What were your thoughts on what actually came out? Uh, And were you surprised, you know, it was even delayed in the first place for as long as it was?
2: Yeah, the report that came out was kind of what I expected. It was so late, it was surprising. I was quite surprised. I mean, that. yeah, again, and there was no real nothing happened you know there's no late fee (laughs) there was nothing nothing happened to them they're just like yeah we'll get out this report whenever we want you know it's just i don't know i was more disappointed that it just wasn't taken more serious you know like they couldn't get that level of report i mean yeah it's not like they gave any breakthrough information right they had to report the numbers there's actually a lot of numbers they didn't even report you know maybe they reported it to the classified yeah uh, to the classified but there's a list you know in the in the NDAA there's a list of what they're required to report and, it, and all of those things were not in the report that came out so I mean all they gave us was the numbers but they did give numbers and like I said having higher numbers at least is indicative of a system that's getting information right at least they're getting some data. And it sounds like that the Mosul orb came from this UAP area. You know, It sounds like the Arrow office has this. The Arrow office. The Arrow. I mean, don't put office in the name of your, in your yeah.
1: acronym. You know? like, it's like pin number. Yeah, it's yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's your
2: pin number number? Yeah. Yeah, so Aero, all, do, all domain, that, that's great. I'm glad they made it all domain. So that means water, space, air, great. And it's still an A, so that's great. All domain uh, anomaly resolution office. So arrow, that's a great name actually. Just it sounds good, you know. It sounds like it has a direction.
1: It sounds quite cool. The kids can get on board with it on TikTok, yeah.
2: So I guess that that's all I would say is I was the report was as I thought it would be. I wasn't blown away either way, um, but it was just so late. I, I just couldn't believe it though.
1: Yeah, I think um, Blockbuster took late fees more uh, seriously than than the government seemed to, but there'll be reasons for that, I am sure. But I wonder, then, looking more positively, what do you hope we can see in future reports? Because what I will and I hate to be you know, sympathetic to it being so late and maybe it being as lacking as it was, but it was what I expected as well. They've now had several changes of office. We've had, you know, AIMSOG and then Arrow, and we've had the change from who originally was drafting the report and then changed. We've now got Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick and team who only had really a couple of months to put it together properly. They now have had extra time. They had that initial delayed report. Should we be expecting more from the unclassified versions going forward? Or is this just the standard we're going to see from any unclassified report?
2: I mean, I I hope not. Because again, if you look into that, what was required, I mean, this first report, I get it. Yeah, it was a couple of months. All they had to do was get the numbers out there and say some basic stuff, which is what they said, we're starting, essentially. I think they could have done it on time. But no, there should be a lot more. So if you look at what's required, there should be some analysis. You know, analysis of of the unknowns is what I would like to see is how many of these, and, and for this report, they focused on what they knew. Right, they focus on well. We've identified fifty three, you know, fifty three percent of the reports. No, I want to see just on okay, what have we not identified, you know, and then a breakout of what is identified, of course, um, but then focusing on those unidentifieds.
1: Yeah, it's like going through an exam at school and your teacher telling you, "Look, thirty percent of the exam you got wrong. Oh, but I passed. You did, yeah. But there's thirty percent you failed. Yeah, but seventy percent. Let's focus on the good stuff, and then I can work on the rest." And they have obviously done that at the flip side. So the the numbers were also already clearly available somewhere because Julian Barnes wrote his New York Times article now back in November, I think. So he was privy to what those numbers were going to be. It just didn't then come out in its kind of full, full version until the, till the January. I, I mean, God, I say this, it's the 3rd of February, so it's only been out a couple of weeks. But... For me, I'm, I'm hopeful, like you say, those future reports give us something more. And like you say, it was part of the requirements. Something else that we're hopeful for this year, and we keep hearing, we hear a lot on this topic, is that there will hopefully be whistleblowers lining up to testify. And again, Jeremy Corbell, George Knapp, and others have alluded to there are people ready to go. Is that something you've heard yourself from anyone you talk to? And again, what what do you hope could come from whistleblowers coming forward?
2: I've tried to get more info on on whistleblowers. You know, I know of just a couple of people in my network that have been asked to go speak. I don't know if they're going to i hope I hope they do. I don't know i I think i I would hope that the government trusts us a little bit more. you know it's it doesn't need to be this <clears throat> we can't share anything and and they don't know everything, right obviously, they could save a lot of time and effort by throwing this information out to the community and let us do the analysis right you don't have the resources great publish the information and guess who is very interested in finding this stuff out and analyzing it you know is the community right so maybe they could also consider the community as not just the the enemy okay we're not just <laughs> they could also consider us as as part of the team right that we we want to find the issue and i just went to the european space conference that was last uh, last week, EU space conference. And the big thing there is about this this threat narrative. Again, you know, because how do governments get people interested? How do governments get people involved? And it's usually through emotion, you know, if you look at it. And they're going with the fear emotion because it's it's the easiest. Okay, yeah, you, Russia's right there. Russia's going to attack Europe. They, they knocked down our satellite system. This is a great fear tactic to get people talking about space investing in space they even mentioned it at the, at the conference they said hey fear is a great motivator great emotion we need people interested and i just think this is not the right way to go okay we it doesn't need to be a threat narrative I, so i propose is what about a collaborative narrative okay we all want to know what this unidentified area you know what these anomalous objects are we, we all want to know what the phenomenon is every country uh, would like to know if you look in the us It's bipartisan, it's like the one bipartisan kind of issue, right? Where it hasn't been taken over by the left or the right. So I think, I would hope they would consider it more of a collaboration. Whereas look, you're in the government, I I worked in the government, but you want the best for the citizens and the earth ultimately, right? As citizens, as members of earth, I want the best as well. Why not consider us as as part of the team? So I think they could release a little bit more. I mean, they didn't release one. Out of those 563 or whatever reports it was, they didn't release one freaking report. You know, nothing. No data, no information, nothing. They just sat up there in their ivory tower. They released their report two months late with no apologies or anything like, here you go. And they told us no information, you know? So I guess another reason I just don't, they're not even kind of in my venue. You know, I, I, I yeah. look at it, I research the stuff they're at and I'm glad people like Jeremy Corbell and them are, are out there doing it. Cause I'm not, I'm not going, you know, I'm like I said, I want to go build the systems, put them out in Mount Wilson ranch, put it right under, you know, put it out at Catalina islands, you know, put a camera right there, all the hotspots, and then just post it online and then, you know, text that link to the government and be like, here you go. <laughs> you know, like yeah. what yeah. about this? You know, that's what I would rather show. I'd rather show evidence and be like, why don't we look at this as a group collaboratively? You know, can we work together? And I, I presented that to the European Space Conference and the direct uh, right to the ESA, director of industry that I just talked to him and man, he, he was not interested. You know, yep. it is to them. It's, it's something that couldn't possibly happen. Yeah. <laughs> I don't.
1: And I think that's why it's important, groups like like UAP Society, individuals, corporations, whether it's the Galileo Project, whether it's MUFON I was talking to, UAPX and what they are trying to do through like a tear in the sky and whatnot, that these things are happening. Because as much as I see some folks on social media, some, some kind of bigger thinkers or influencers or whoever you want to say and they do some great work but the idea that this can't go away ever again we're on the precipice of disclosure and it's like well i don't see the evidence for that not to say we're not making a lot of progress but this could get shut down because the public swell of interest isn't there for like you say that that mainstream public interest while it gathers pace at times it goes up and down it's like people always classically say wrestling WWF has its swings in popularity where you had like the Hulk Hogan era and then it goes away then like Steve Austin and the Rock and then it goes away then John Cena and it goes away in the UFO topic I've seen that just in the last couple of years where there's peaks and troughs of interest for the mainstream and it doesn't hold on we had a couple of months back when the initial report was due to come out we had the the HBO series with um ah oh, JJ Abrams put out the UFO documentary series and there was a couple of things and it went away again. And I think that's why it's important people keep it at the forefront of conversation and keep doing the work as well. Because I don't see the evidence that the public interest is there, especially from a UK point of view. Um it's still not there. Um and from Portugal, I know you're doing some work with the the Portuguese one of the newspapers, aren't you, locally? You write articles for them. How how do you find in Portugal the UFO topic is right now?
2: It seems like, it, well, Portugal is is uh, kind of in the Latin market with Portuguese, you know, with the Brazilian Spanish, and they're much more into ovnis. You know, they call it ovnis instead of UFOs. It just seems like a m- more open part of their culture, actually, in South America and even in Portugal, Spain, you know, they have a long running, at least Spain has long running uh, UFO shows, you know, weekly UFO shows. Mm-hmm. So I, I think in the English speaking countries it's still kind of late uh so it is more advanced i think in um in latin america and in at least spain here in europe and portugal
1: which is always really good to hear and hola to anyone out in portugal spain or latin american countries who are listening that's the extent of my any of my kind of spanish language ability Uh, i barely speak english to be fair so chris i want to finish off because you've been really good with your time and with a couple of listener questions both of them quite different i'll start with um gary gary wants to know does chris have any thoughts on why ufos are sometimes reported to fly in formation we heard we've touched on ryan graves and he talks about those spheres inside of cubes that were in front of the gimbal apparently in a a v-like formation any thoughts on that
2: yeah, I, I guess I have two different ideas or thoughts that came to mind. Um, the first is if you think of like Phoenix lights, um, that's an interesting case because you have these wide, like balls of light essentially, but flying in a locked formation, you know, basically just lock step together, almost like a part of the same giant craft. And so that's what a lot of people reported is that it was a big V and we could see the lights, but but actually around the lights was a craft, a, a giant boomerang-shaped craft. So the first thought would be, you know, are these parts of the engines that we could see? Is it some sort of part of the technology that you know, moves the craft, envelops the craft? Same thing with Turkey UFO. They seem to have like these kind of weird lights, because you always hear about these balls of light, like we, like we talked about earlier. And that goes back to also Berkshire UFO. Berkshire UFO, Martin Willis did a great, great show on that. One of the first ones I kind of looked into on that. There's a case where, where this guy is, he's crossing a, like a bridge with his car. And he looks over as a family, this is before they get abducted essentially. And he sees just a light. There's just like a ball of light following them, you know, along with their car. Right. And then he stops and he looks over again, and instead of a ball of light being there, there is this giant ship, you know, like a giant spaceship. So, like stories like that, again, anecdotal, all this stuff, you know, with a grain of salt, et cetera. But stories like that show that maybe it's it's just uh, what we see is the the orb. So we just Mm -hmm. see that ball of light, but it's really kind of like a portal, or it's like a door, um, or it's or it's just like the engine. You know, like we only see the exhaust of the engine. Yeah, yeah. You can only see in infrared or something. So like the next of the the rest of the craft is being is being hidden. That's the first thought. And then the second thought you hear about is these things seem to fly almost like organic entities. You know, if, I've thought before, if you had life, if you could have plasma based life, if you have life, you know, whatever, a different type of life, not based on our chemistry, et cetera, but based on plasma energy, right? The fourth state of matter. Then could these be some sort of just space life forms, you know, like a space insect you know something flying around Space and jellyfish seem to fly like insects together interesting yeah
1: i know dan who comes on the podcast regular and the work he's doing with Vinny adams and ash cowie and others in uh, phenomenology they're going back out to Colombia this april where they're looking at you know uh, potential these these balls of lightning and are these some other forms of life you know, is this what part of this phenomena could be? And like you say, it's just we we stick to life being our chemistry. And I always wonder we hear about other planets being inhospitable to life, you know, oh, it's a gas planet or it's this and yeah, well, for us maybe, but what about, like you say, other forms of potential life being being formed on those planets? So yeah, interesting. Thanks for the answer. And uh Bakir asks and you touched on this a little bit before to be honest chris what does chris think about the idea of humans being the neural network of a bigger organism's brain call it the <laughs> brain of god or the brain of the universe and he says um, andy i'm sure you can word it better but i've left it in his own words because i think that's perfectly fine Be here so thank you
2: excellent yeah i love that idea like i said that's um the third part of my kind of uh, show uh my channel is on the theory of everything and it's really a scalar view of the universe that we are, it, it's basically that patterns uh, emerge at different sizes. If you can think of it that way, it's not that necessarily we're, we're, inside of a larger brain, I guess it is that the structure that allows our brain to, that allows us to think the physical structure that we see is very similar to the physical structure we see for the greater universe. Mm-hmm. Right, so I I think of it more as a, um. Uh, what they do, in, in, basically, by by action, we we relate to neurons in your brain, right? We we fulfill the same role as a neuron in your brain. So in that in that sense, to me, it seems very obvious that we are in a much larger system, right? And we terms, you know, we call systems organized systems of life organisms. So in that case, it seems very obvious to me that we're each in our own systems, and since everything on Earth, at least I know about, is organic, uh, I would also call it an organism. So to me, it seems like everything's living and breathing on the planet. We just, if it's not human, we don't think it's really alive, or, or that we uh, that it's that it's nature. But I think that's yeah, totally agree with that.
1: So if you're going to phone in sick to work tomorrow, folks, for a day off, call your boss and tell them, do you know what? We're just the neural network of a bigger organism. And what's the point in coming into work nine to five tomorrow? I'm going to take the day just to chill and, and be, a, be a neuron.
2: That's one of the arguments for, you know, of existence is that if you have a system, right, then it would make sense at all different levels of organization to have feedback, have some sort of feedback loop. And so you can make an argument that that is what consciousness is, is that it's the entire system uh, having observer feedback loops. So like you and me, we're here in a conscious environment, seeing around and saying, this sucks, you know, like <laughs> this is messed up. I want to fix this system. Uh, why? I want to make it more efficient. I want to remove evil. I want to remove pain and suffering. So I think it could be argued that we are like um, observer, observers for a larger feedback loop system. Uh, and that would be where, where consciousness is. Well, Chris,
1: we have went around the houses on this one, which has been great. It's been been all over, but I love that. And we've we've crammed a lot into almost an hour and a half. Is there anything you want to plug that you're working on? All the links for your stuff are going to be in the description to the podcast anyway. But what's to come on your channel uh, over the next coming weeks and months?
2: I, I wanted to just relay one last point was I think the key difference now between the past, you know, so why why should we keep doing this? Why Why am I optimistic that we'll get any information is the technology right we're at a totally different time now i'm talking to you real time right oh you know for free essentially video chat and you'll publish this out within a week essentially so we have this now new access to technology where i'm linked directly to you i don't have to go to anyone else i don't have to go to the government we do have youtube or whatever uh, whatever client you're using here zencaster uh,
1: yeah. i'll give them a shout out they do sponsor so
0: yeah
2: excellent yeah it seems to be working well and so I would say it, now we have decentralized technology, you know, and that's the big thing. So for me, I'm working on building that Web3. How, we, how can we use that technology the, the best, like on the bleeding edge, right? Ahead of government, right? we're, we're gonna, we, I want to be ahead of what the government people can even understand um, so that we can leverage that. And, and so for that, it's Mount Wilson Ranch, it's Sky360 and UAP Society. So that's really what, what I'm focusing on. Uh, But yeah, they can just watch it, the YouTube channel, check out our other UAP Society channel. We're trying to grow that to its own kind of organization. And yeah, it was great. Thanks for having me on, Andy. Anytime. And
1: please, if you haven't already, check out Chris's channel and the UAP Society channel as well. Links in the description. Thanks for listening. And if if you've come over from Chris's channel to listen to me talk to Chris, thank you very much. Hopefully you stick around as well. And hopefully, Chris, it's not a year before you're back on again. So look forward to speaking again soon.
2: Look forward to it, mate. Thank you.
1: Of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO, UAP, And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see.
0: Not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer. A little Baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament Funk. The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shut out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoked a little
1: Meditated game of fateful
0: full on meta, I can't imagine how it could have been any better. I got the stairs, and there he was. Like, you awake? I was about to abduct you, cuz. I jumped back and nearly kissed myself, and I climbed out the window after the elf. And I woke up in my bed, and there was something on my head, and everything was weird, and everything was red
1: my boys, they thought this was noise, they thought it was a dream, they thought it was my toys, they thought it was my problems and they think I should think therapy and I don't know what it because it doesn't really scare me.